Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. You can find it in your bulletins. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God. Of God. You know, today's a special day in the life of our church because today what we're going to do is we're going to ordain our first deacons. And I wanted to give a message that would fit the occasion of ordaining deacons. And just to paint a little bit of history of where we've been, uh, last year I started, we started this process when uh, I preached a message from Acts chapter 6, which basically talks about how the apostles appointed seven men to serve bread to Hellenistic widows because a problem arose in the early church where uh, the Hellenistic widows weren't receiving distribution of bread. And essentially there was this administrative problem that occurred. And uh, not only that, but the apostles, because they were so busy uh, being involved in these kind of uh, things, uh, they, didn't, they weren't able to give enough attention to the ministry of prayer and the word. And so their solution, uh, which is where uh, people believe the origin of deacons come from, their solution was to appoint seven men of good character who would take over this administrative task uh, in order for mercy to basically be shown well to all of the widows, not just the Hebrew widows, but also the Hellenistic widows. And uh, that was a starting point, but after that, uh, over the next, the course of the next couple of months, what we did is, uh, you know, a group of people uh, who uh, were interested in being trained as deacons, we gathered together about once a month, and we trained as deacons. We talked about things and matters of the church. And uh, basically, the conclusion of that process brings us to this day. Now, if you're not familiar with, like, church uh, structure or church polity, uh, you might not be familiar with what a deacon does. But even if you are familiar with, like, church structure and polity, there's a good chance you still may not really fully understand what a deacon does. And if that's you, I wouldn't blame you because, you know, a couple years ago I did research on deacons and so many different Christian traditions and so many different churches 
they employ deacons in so many different ways. You know, sometimes deacons are the ones who are in charge of mercy ministry. Sometimes deacons are the ones who are uh, in charge of facilities, especially if uh, the church owns the building. Sometimes deacons are the ones who are in charge of the finances and financial stewardship or hospitality. And, you know, in one sense, it, it does make sense that deacons are used in so many different ways because I think the primary responsibility is basically to serve uh, the, the outward or the physical needs of the church. And that can be different depending on the particular church. You know, at its core, I, I think it's safe to say that what a deacon is is a servant of the church. Uh, in fact, the, that Greek word, deacon, comes from the Greek word. Uh, it's derived from the verb to serve, diakoneo. And so today, I thought, you know, instead of looking at one of the specific deacon passages in the Bible, I want to think about serving in general. Now, in the life of Jesus, some of the most well-known stories uh, that we find, and even somebody who doesn't go to church, I think will be familiar with the story that we read here in terms of the feeding narrative. You know, this is one of the uh, miracles of Jesus where he feeds thousands of people, and you actually find it in every gospel narrative. Uh, Sometimes you find it twice, like in the Gospel of Mark, uh, there's two feeding narratives. And I think because of the miraculous nature of the story, it captures our attention, right? It's like, wow, Jesus fed all of these people with so little. But sometimes the, the supernatural or miraculous aspect of the story uh, can distract us in that we miss the intention that Jesus had in terms of doing this miracle. And I want to look at this feeding narrative in the Gospel of John in particular because I do think it gives us a little bit of insight into Jesus' intention as he is feeding this large crowd now, we're only looking at the first 15 verses of a, of a larger story, of a larger narrative, but I want to give you some context because I think it does help us what Jesus is, understand what Jesus is doing. At this point in, in the ministry of Jesus, you have these huge crowds that are flocking to Jesus. He, he is like this rock star where people are, are just so intrigued by him, and by the end of uh, in verse 15, they, they want to make him king. But, you know, if we were to read the entire chapter, and it's a pretty long chapter, at the end of chapter 6, something interesting happens is the crowds are no longer there. The crowds have abandoned Jesus. The crowds are gone, and all that is left are his disciples, the 12 disciples. And by the end of this chapter, the crowds, they think Jesus is a crazy person because he said some offensive things like, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, and they hear that, and they go, whoa, that's crazy talk, right? And, and they abandon him. And you see, when we read this narrative, I think it's easy to assume that Jesus is performing this miracle for the crowd because uh, the crowd is larger in number, and the larger the group, the more important they are. But what if Jesus' intention wasn't to perform this miracle for the crowd, but what if his intention is to perform this miracle for his disciples? You know, verse 10 tells us that there were 5,000 men. Uh, In the ancient world, women and children typically weren't counted in a census, so uh, the commentators say that there could have been up to 15,000 people here. And I just want you to imagine what it would be like to feed 15,000 people. You know, if you've ever planned a big party and planned to feed, like, 20, 30 people, you know how hard that can be and how much work that can be, but... Think about the logistics of serving thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Think about how long it would have taken to 
right, distribute the food to all of those people, and then for them to go back with 12 baskets and to collect the leftovers, that would have been, I think, a lot of work. You know, if you've worked in a restaurant, you, you probably know how hard it is to serve a big crowd of people, but imagine doing all that work for thousands of people. And he, here's the thing. What is the result of all of that labor that the disciples did of serving the food and gathering the food? What is the result of all of that work by the end of chapter 6? Nothing. The crowds are gone. And initially, maybe it seems like a waste of time and a waste of service. You know, if I were a disciple, this is, I think, what I would think. Why did I just do all of that work for you, Jesus? I wanted to be part of this great movement, and all that work went to waste because the crowd is gone. What is the point of all that serving? But, you know, I think it only seems pointless, uh, at least to us from our vantage point, when we are not seeing things in the same way that Jesus saw things. Because, you see, sometimes when we serve, uh, we probably serve with our own set of expectations in terms of what we hope the outcome to be. Uh, And I imagine the disciples probably served with their own set of expectations as well. But, you know, Jesus had this entirely different agenda with respect to this miracle. And I think in order to understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish, we we just have to ask a simple question here. Who were the ones who grew in faith through this miracle? Was it the ones who were being served the bread? Was it the crowds? Or was it the ones who served the bread? Was it his disciples? You see, by the end of this chapter, when the crowds are gone, Jesus asked the 12 if you want to go away. And their response is this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you that you are the Holy One of God. His disciples stuck around, and I think perhaps maybe through their serving, they grew in faith because they were in a position to see and to experience something amazing about who Jesus was. And so let's take a closer look at this conversation You know, I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. Um, But if you look at verse 5, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And verse 6 tells us that the reason Jesus asked this question was in order to test him. And this is where we get a little bit of insight as to why Jesus was doing this miracle. See, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he asks this question in order to test Philip. And this tells us that he is thinking about the disciples as he's preparing to do this miracle. And uh, how do... The disciples respond, well, in verse 7, Philip says this, 200 denarii, which is about eight months' wages, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And Philip, what is he basically doing? He's calculating. He's doing some math, and he's saying, okay, this is, look how many people are here. Look, uh, look what we have. Even if I had eight months' wages worth of bread, it still wouldn't be enough for everybody here to eat a little bit. This is an impossibility. How are we going to do this? Then Andrew says in uh, verse 9, he says, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And I know initially it sounds like Andrew is trying to be helpful, but uh, I think Andrew here is actually trying to be uh, a little bit sarcastic here because, you know, if someone were to say, we need to build a new school, uh, Andrew would be the one to say, hey, we have this boy's $5 allowance to build a new school. Uh, 
Why don't we use this, right? And it's a little bit sarcastic, I think, and a little bit snarky. And he's just basically pointing out how ludicrous and, and the impossibility of the situation of being able to feed all of these people when they have so little. And I imagine most of us are probably going to be like Philip or Andrew. We, we're going to analyze the situation, uh, and we're going to do some calculations, and we're going to say doable or not doable, uh, worth trying or not worth trying. Or we're going to maybe be like, uh, definitely New Yorkers would be like this, more like Andrew. We might be a little bit snarky, and we might be like, well, okay, let's try it, but we have very little. Jesus, he knew what he was going to do, but look, this this is what he wants to do here. It's not about feeding the people. It's not about showing off his supernatural ability, but he wants the faith of his disciples to be built up here. That's ultimately Jesus' agenda here. That's why he had them serving bread. And I think ultimately that's why Jesus wants us to serve as well. He wants to build our faith. We should serve not so much for what we can do, what we can provide, the needs that we can fill through our serving, but I think we should first serve because of what God can do to our faith through our serving. And, you know, I know that's not the most pragmatic way to look at serving, but I do think that's the most spiritual way to look at serving. Uh, you know, most of you should know, you know, even if you're visiting us for the first time here, uh, it's, it's obvious. Uh, we are a small church. Uh, there are not too many people here. And as a small church, uh, I share this with the deacons, you know, the correct illustration or analogy of the, of the kind of community we are is not, we're not like a startup we are probably more like a family business in this sense. You know, if your parents owned a small business, uh, you, you might know what that means, but essentially it means if it's a family business, all hands on deck, right? All hands on deck. Everybody pitches in. Everybody does a little bit of everything, even if you're not particularly good at it. My parents uh, had a grocery store as a store business, I remember uh, when I was young, my dad would come home with like a brown paper bag filled with cash and uh, food stamps, and then my mom would take it, and she would sort it right into different bills, and then the food stamps, she would stamp it saying paid, and she would record it. Uh, As I got older, uh, they shifted some of that responsibility to me, so my dad would come home, and I would take the money, (laughs) and I would sort it, right, and I would stamp the food stamps. As I even got older uh, and they began to trust me with like running the cash register or as I got strong enough to you know, help unload the truck with the produce, uh, I did that. W- when it's a family business, every, everybody, all hands on deck. You just got to pitch in and you just got to help out. I think that's the way our church is. Oh, you know, by the way, you know who ran security at my parents' business? My mom. <laughs> <laughs> You know, some, one time someone tried to uh, steal something, and my mom, she took an apple, and she chased, like, the guy down and threw the apple at him. <laughs> anyway, my mom, my mom was a fiery lady, and uh, I didn't realize until uh, I, I started hearing these stories when I was older. That's the way our church is. That, that I think that's the reality of our church. We're, we're kind of like a family business. You know, we are not the most polished church. We don't have, like, the most polished programs. Uh, we don't run necessarily the smoothest operation. But here's the benefit, I think, of our church. 
and a church being like that. The benefit is there are so many opportunities to pitch in and serve. And that's actually a blessing. That's actually a good thing. That ultimately means that there are so many opportunities in which people can come in and kind of serve so that they can grow in faith through serving. Uh, Here's my opinion. I really do think and I really do believe we have a great group of people here. Uh, I think we have a great group of deacons that are going to be ordained today. I think we have a great group of people here who have grown in faith over the course of many years. And I think one of the reasons why we have a great group of people who have grown in faith over the years is because so many people here have been serving for such a long time. We have people here who have served when it was hard. They have served when they had no time or energy. They've served because simply nobody else would do it. They've served even when they weren't doing particularly well personally. They've served even when the thing that they had to do wasn't particularly fun or enjoyable. They've served even though they weren't particularly good at the thing that they had to do. And I think for those people, over the course of years, I know in the micro it gets a little bit frustrating sometimes, but taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, I think those things over the course of time has a lasting impact on people's faith because through that we begin to see the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God operative in our lives. You know, if you were here last week, I mentioned something about Scooter Braun, um, and I'm going to just repeat what I said last week, but Scooter Braun, he is his talent manager, manages artists like Kanye West, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande. He said that people are not created to be worshipped, and I don't believe he's a Christian believer, so I guess he's you know, it's something that he's learned, but he says people aren't created to be worshipped, but people are created to serve. And he says what messes up all of these super successful celebrities is that they're being worshipped all the time. They're being praised all the time, and there is no outlet for them to serve. And for them to maintain, I guess, their, their sense of sanity, they have to be intentional about finding ways to serve or else just inside they're going to get all messed up. I thought that was a really insightful thing and really interesting thing that he would say. And, uh, you know, he got even got a little bit morbid, and he would say, you know, I can understand the person who is very successful, who seems to have it all, uh, ending their life. But, you know, the person who I wouldn't understand is the person who's uh, serving at the soup kitchen every week, giving themselves, pouring themselves out for other people. If that person ended their life, that would baffle me. I wouldn't understand. And I think he understands something about the way God created us. See, God created us to serve, and I think by extension, it's through our serving where we really begin to flourish and grow in our faith. Some of you probably have uh, experienced this in uh, maybe other ways. If you've participated in a mission trip in the past, uh, most of the time, who grows through that experience? Uh, I don't think it's the people that you go to serve in that other country, but what I see is the people who grow the most are the ones who go to serve. Uh, You know, I see uh, Dan and Allison in the back. Welcome back from San Francisco. I think they just got back today, right? Uh, 
you know, I talk to people, you know, they're leading uh, a discipleship training course, uh, and it's about towards the end. Uh, but I was talking to some people who have experienced it numerous times, first as a student, and then second time as a, like staff serving the student. And they say, you know, it's a completely different experience going through it a second time when you're serving the students. And I think that's true. And I think there's greater growth and greater blessing that comes through that. When I was in college, I, I did a lot of youth ministry. I served uh, a lot of high school students. Uh, I was a youth group teacher at my church. I would go to uh, retreats as a counselor. I would serve at other churches, youth group retreats. I think one winter, I, was, I went to five retreats during my college break. Now, I look back on that time, and I say, who grew the most? I don't think the students grew the most because I didn't really know that much back then. And I wasn't that, you know, I don't know that much now, but even back then, I really did not know that much. But I really do think I grew the most in my serving them. You see what I'm trying to say? We look at serving as like, oh, I just need to help out or I just need to fill a need. But I think the way Jesus looks at serving here is we need to serve because it helps us. It helps grow our faith. It helps us, remind, connects us to the faithful God and the good God. And if we never put ourselves in a position to serve, and for some of us, if we don't have time, if we're not intentional about serving others, if we never serve bread, if we never clean up after dinner, just like these disciples did, then I think we may miss something important about Jesus that you only see through serving. You see, at the end of the day, what is this passage ultimately about? Is it about serving physical needs? Do every people who serve here, are you serving just to serve physical needs? No, I don't. It's not ultimately about the physical bread, but it's about the spiritual bread that we ultimately need. That is the point of chapter 6. And this spiritual bread is found in the true bread, the bread of life in Jesus Christ. That's the point here. And Jesus tells the crowd that they are following him because he fed them physical bread, but they shouldn't be seeking a bread that perishes. And it's not that physical bread is a bad thing, but that there's something much, much, much more important. It's not that your careers are bad, but there is something much, much, much more important. It's not that money is bad, but there is something much, much, much more important. Not that relationship is bad, not that family is bad, but there is something much, much more important here. And ultimately, that is what Christ is directing us to seek, the kind of food that endures to eternal life. Up until now in John's Gospels, people have been confused, I think, by Jesus. They're confused because they're, they're only thinking about the, the physical world, the physical realm, and they don't really understand the spiritual things that Jesus is talking about. So John chapter 2 Jesus says this, I'm going to destroy the temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. How do the people respond? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? John chapter 4, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that you need the water that I give. And she responds, sir, you have nothing to draw with. You see the pattern here that we're seeing in the Gospel of John? Jesus has been speaking of spiritual things this entire time, but people can only understand and see their physical needs. And even as he feeds his crowd, the point is not that Jesus is able to provide bread for thousands and thousands of people, 
But the point is this great, wonderful spiritual truth that Jesus is the true bread that we ultimately need deep within our hearts. See, that's what the crowd missed. That's what the disciples want, or that's what Jesus wanted his disciples to ultimately see. And that's, what I think, what he wants us to see here today. But you see, there's another thing that the crowd misses here that we can't afford to miss, and we find it in verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus perceived that the crowd would take Jesus by force and make him to be king. And again, they misunderstand Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we want you to be our political king. We want you to exercise political authority and lead this revolution against Rome. Free our people again. Be the Christ. Be the Messiah that we think you're supposed to be. But what they didn't understand is the kind of king Jesus would ultimately be. He wouldn't be the king that they expected him to be. He would be the humble king, the servant king, the dying king. You see, when Jesus would die on a cross, you know, there's a crowd of people who would yell, crucify him, crucify him, because they did not understand that Jesus was the true bread that came from heaven. They didn't understand that Jesus was uh, fulfilling his role as king through his death upon a cross. They didn't understand that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But that is why Jesus came. That is how he is the true bread of life. That is how we are able to receive him and to be fed by him. That is how our souls can be nourished by him. Because Jesus, the servant king and the dying king, came to give his life as a ransom for many. And friends, that that is the greatest mystery of love here. We can receive it. We can rejoice in it. But I don't know if we will ever fully understand it. As we ordain our deacons today, uh, you're going to see a people who are examples of people who have served. You know, in a way, I think they have been deacons for many years, but today we're simply formalizing uh, formally recognizing them in this office. Um, but it's, it's something that they've already been doing. You know, as we ordain these servants of the church, um, and then of course it's not just these eight who are servants of the church. Many, many people here are faithfully serving the church. But I want us to be reminded of, of the call to serve. Uh, not to serve, if you're already serving, not to serve simply because there is a need, but to serve because Jesus, the King of Kings, came to serve himself and to give his life for us. And without that reality in our hearts, you know, our service is really going to be impossible to do with the joy that we need and the sense of privilege that we need to serve well. And perhaps some of you, if you aren't serving, I, I want you to consider serving, not because there's a need. (laughs) Again, consider serving because of what it could potentially do in terms of growing your faith and seeing and experiencing the faithfulness of God. Let's pray together.